You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, I'm Jeff Rafke, your host, uh, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And we are especially proud today to have the first repeat guest on The Zeitgeist, and that is uh, retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who was, uh, during his time of service, the uh, commander of US Army in Europe, among many other positions. Um, who remains a resident of Germany, uh, if I can disclose that, uh, and, and is also the Pershing Chair at the Center for European Policy Analysis uh, here in Washington, D.C. So, Ben, it's great to have you back with us. Well, thanks for allowing me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was such a success the first time, um, you know, by popular demand, let's call it that way. <laughs> um, and so uh, we are recording on December 3rd, which is... In, uh, in the period between the publication of the coalition agreement for the next German government, it is just a couple of days after an important meeting of NATO's foreign ministers uh, and meeting of the OSCE uh, ministers in which the Russian attempts to coerce, rattle, um, and, uh, and otherwise undermine Ukraine uh, are high on the international agenda. And we are just a few days before the, um, uh, this new German coalition will take office. So we're in this uh, sort of no man's land politically uh, when it comes to uh, the situation uh, in, in Europe and Europe's largest, uh, largest power, Germany. And so I thought it was a good time to talk about uh, what we see happening in Europe, Germany's role, and uh, maybe to take a little bit of a look back um, as, uh, as we move from one government to another, if that works for you. Yeah, sure. The first, the first thing that strikes me, uh, and for those of you who have read the coalition agreement, um, and for those who haven't, uh, that the, the parties, the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Liberal Free Democrats have identified is a instead of the 2% target that we've all become really familiar with um, for NATO defense spending um, uh, aspirations, um, and where Germany has, of course, had its, had its difficulties politically um, uh, executing that, they identify a target of 3%. Uh, and this is a combined spending on defense, on development, and on diplomacy. Um, so I wonder, Ben, as a as a commander who had to integrate uh, not just military effects uh, but those of civilian uh, actors as well. And as you look at Germany these days, how do you see that shift of paradigm from a two percent defense spending target to a three percent kind of networked uh, uh, engagement, as Germans might put it? Well, first of all, I'm for anything that increases uh, Germany's investment in its contribution to defense and security in Europe. Um, uh, of course, I'm, I'm a little uneasy when you create a, a situation where perhaps investment in defense and traditional defense things is diluted or can be diluted. And that's, that's why there has been uh, some concern in the past few years about this, this sort of model. But I think that the uh, the key for when you think of Germany's 
position on the map, its leadership role in the alliance, and of course, its leadership role in the European Union. Uh, what we need from what we, for our collective security need from Germany is uh, well-trained, well-equipped, modernized, uh, well-led uh, forces at high level of readiness, not necessarily bigger Bundeswehr, but everything that the Bundeswehr has now needs to be at a better level of readiness. Right. So that, that's got to be priority. But I would also say that Germany's role uh, inside the alliance is, I mean, it's the logistical hub, it's a transportation hub, it's a provider in so many ways necessary for rapid reinforcement. So in, in this case, um, I would advocate for some of this investment, which perhaps fits inside the 3%, going towards improved cyber protection of transportation infrastructure, for example. And uh, improved transportation infrastructure. If you can't get well. there, it doesn't matter how much capability you have. And so this is a unique role that Germany has. Where I would, where I would not uh, be too keen would be if this money goes to uh, aid development in Africa in hopes of preventing a conflict and then somehow counting that towards defense. I think the, the women and men of the Bundeswehr deserve the best possible equipment, the best possible training, and, uh, and for their ranks to be full. Yeah. Uh, that'd be my concern. Um, and and to, to maybe dig one layer deeper on this, I think it's also important to keep in mind you know, right now, Germany is spending at about 1.5%. And naturally, the denominator, which is the gross domestic product, um, matters. And it, uh, it declined during the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, as, as people frequently point out, uh, if the economy grows and you spend the same amount, it looks like your percentage goes down, which is, you know, it's it, that's the 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 downside of the of the two percent or three percent target. But anyway, um, Germany's spending around one point five percent of GDP on defense. It has its maximum spending on development assistance has been zero point seven percent, which is a target that has been uh, identified in UN circles for many years. And Germany is, I think, uh, one of the closest co countries on earth to that achieving that 0.7% target. So you add those two together, you get 2.2% of GDP. Frankly, the foreign office budget, uh, in other words, diplomacy, that is the smallest item in the federal budget, um, well below what Germany spends on, on uh, development even. So to get to 3%, you need you need to spend it on something. It's going to be hard to triple Germany's diplomatic core and diplomatic presence. Uh, there are limits to how much additional defense or development spending you could have. So mm -hmm. there is a natural opening there to invest more in defense and in particular in the kinds of enabling um, uh, capabilities that Germany uniquely uh, possesses by its geography and by its um, you know its central role in European logistics now. Well, that's that's a good way to kind of lay it out, like you just did, and and so I, I'm not worried that this would somehow mean a lessening of of defense investment, uh, but it does highlight the the focus on the number highlights the fact that Germany still does not have a confidence in its strategic leadership role in the world. Yeah, um, the the amount of defense investment uh, should be based on. Uh, not just an agreement on a number, but on what are the threats? What what do you need defense for? 
And how does Germany see its role in the world within the alliance, within the union, and in its own uh, unilateral and bilateral interests? What capabilities does it need? So I advocate for a public debate in Germany about its strategic role in the world. And, and then you can have policies about nuclear sharing or do you hang a weapon off of a drone, for example, or uh, what, where do you put your investment? And I, I hope that the new government will uh, lead that sort of debate about Germany's role in the world and not be scared of the leadership word. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of encouraging uh, language in, in this coalition agreement when it comes to um, you know, taking a, you know, what I might say is a more sober view of the sources of geopolitical and strategic challenge uh, Germany faces, yeah. uh, whether that's Russia, whether that's China. Um, do you do you have uh, then optimism about the national security strategy, which is also identified in this coalition agreement, that that could lead, that that could be a part of that process you were talking about of, of generating a greater German um, coherence and su public support for their, their international role? It's a, a, a critical process. I mean, to go through all the work um, in a coalition government <clears throat> where the Bundestag also has so much control, uh, authority over where the military goes, um, this is an important process to, to, to do it in public. I mean, I personally, I would love to see a lot of town halls all over Germany where defense experts aired some of these considerations. Um, what do, uh, what's the Bundestag willing uh, to support? And also then to have uh, elected leaders to stand up and say, here's our five or three or two strategic priorities. And, and we're going to put our money on those priorities. Clearly, um, the uh, climate change is, is going to be a part of this. And, and this is more than just, you know, blocking the use of diesel cars in downtown Munich. There's so many other aspects to it. Uh, energy security is, is a critical part. Right now, huge decisions are being made because Germany depends, like many other countries, on gas coming from Russia. I mean, that's the part of uh, strategic role in the world. Are you limited or have you developed other means to, so that you're not under the, so easily leveraged? You know, the United States went through this when we realized how much um, our economy was controlled by Arab states that, from which we got all of our oil. Mm -hmm. and, and that limits your strategic options. Yeah. Um, let's switch gears for a second. Uh, you know, we we know uh, that a new government will probably be elected next week, but we don't know who the defense minister is going to be. So rather than speculate about that, I thought I would uh, ask for your opinion. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've had for the last couple of years, um, the defense minister has been uh, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer from the CDU, who was also um, for a period of uh, the CDU uh, chair. Um, before her was the current European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen. Um, how do you look at the legacy of AKK, as she's known, um, uh, or maybe going back a little bit further to uh, von der Leyen from her time as minister, if you'd like? How do, how do you see their legacy um, in, uh, in Germany and with the, in particular with the Bundeswehr and Germany's uh, security role? I think that uh, under the leadership of Defense Minister Annegret Kronbauer, uh, the Bundeswehr and the German Minister of Defense are actually on a good uh, direction. 
she, um, I think, did a lot to restore the importance and appreciation of readiness. What, you know, I mean, why do you have a Bundeswehr? Why do you have a U.S. Army? Why do you have a U.S. Navy? It's to be able to do tasks, which means you have to be modernized. You have to be fully manned. You have to be trained and equipped. It's not a big, giant social experiment. Um, and I think that she did a good job of getting the focus back on that and that uh, men and women of the Bundeswehr, uh, when they were sent on operation, whether it's Mali or their NATO missions, they had what they needed. They don't have any depth, but they were at least able to meet their requirements. So I, I was impressed with her. And I also really liked uh, the speech she gave in Hamburg uh, about two months ago where she reminded German people that, you know, the soldiers, men and women of the Bundeswehr, deserve support, deserve respect and appreciation for what they, what they do. And uh, I think, I hope that the next defense minister and the next government will also um, try and reconnect the Bundeswehr to German society. That it's, I mean, it's, it's been a long time since the end of the war. This is the Bundeswehr. And, uh, um, if Germany is in fact going to have a leading role in the world, no matter how many diplomats you have or how good your foreign minister is, if it's not backed up by the potential for hard power, then I think there's, you're not as effective as you would want to be. So AKK did a good job, I think, in, in that sort of direction. Um, but it's going to take a lot of work inside the Bundestag also, because there's, uh, as you and I have discussed, the, the ministry particularly the procurement process, is a large, unwieldy, bureaucratic beast. And it, and it does not incentivize innovation or rapid acquisitions. Yeah. Um, and let me um, build on that and talk a little bit about defense transformation, because you've, you've indicated some of the areas where, um, uh, where uh, Kram Karrenbauer, as minister, has tried to push uh, the Bundeswehr uh, forward and to ensure that it is prepared for the the types of missions that it, the Bundeswehr is most likely to enter into. Um, I think it's also interesting to see the way the political discussion in Germany um, has evolved in the last couple of years um, away from, uh, you know, that people talk about equipping the troops um, rather than about defense procurement and armament. Mm. Um, uh, in other words, putting the soldier and the German society's responsibility to the soldier um, that, so that, uh, that he or she can do uh, the job effectively. Um, but when you, you've mentioned readiness a couple of times already in this discussion, and clearly it's an area where you see uh, more need. Um, is that just a question of building out the readiness with Germany's existing capabilities? Or is this also a question of acquiring new capabilities that uh, can then be put to use, whether it's in a NATO context, in an EU context, or otherwise? Well, it, it's uh, some of both, of course. Um, Germany, the Bundeswehr has three divisions, for example, but they're not fully manned, they're not all fully equipped. So you don't need a fourth division but what you have needs to be fully manned and all the equipment needs to work and at a normal level of, of readiness, operational readiness. And, and part of this is culture or mindset. And the Bundeswehr, I mean, older German officers, they didn't forget how to do maintenance on tanks or how to make their uh, U-boats, uh, the submarines work or keep airplanes in the sky. 
there's a mindset of we've got to be ready to go. And also there's a, a uh, logistics tail that's required, parts and that sort of thing. And, and uh, I think they're still paying the price for decisions that were made about 15 years ago that uh, prevents them from being at the level of readiness that it should be. But you're also correct that there's a modernization aspect to this. Um, the fact that Germany just this week, I think, made the decision that yes, in very certain cases, you can arm drones. Everybody in the world has armed drones. I mean, including non-state actors. Uh, and so to protect women and men of the Bundeswehr, drones that are armed is, uh, to me, is a very common sense thing. But there is this, I think, uh, ethical discussion about should you be allowed to strike a target 500 miles away without ever seeing the person you're doing it and uh, that you're striking? Uh, that's got to be sorted out. So a, a positive step that, that Germany has decided that they can arm some of their Heron drones specifically for the, for the purpose of protecting women and men of the Bundeswehr. That's a good step. Um, I think that the... Uh, if, I, if I could say on that, though, isn't that... A, it's always seemed to me to be a bit of a sideshow because, as you said, this does not raise in in pretty much any other um, uh, country that's an important member of NATO or plays an important international security role. This is just a non-issue. So Germans have gotten themselves really worked up about this uh, debate when, frankly, it is it is so um, obvious that elsewhere that I don't think anybody's going to be you know applauding that Germany has finally you know, resolved this, this self-inflicted uh, kind of True. conundrum. True, but my point is that this is a, at least it's a step in that right direction. Yeah. I mean, if the new government said, no way in hell, we're never gonna hang a, a bullet off of a drone, that would be very concerning, uh, concerning to me. A much more significant issue into the future um, is the role of artificial intelligence. I mean, all, all of us now are, are working on systems to be able to, to be effective in future war and future combat that's, that uh, some people refer to as hyperwar. I mean, things are gonna be happening so fast, faster than the average human could, could deal with and, and our elected officials having to make decisions. So the use of artificial intelligence and quantum computing to help understand what's happening is gonna be critical. And uh, you've, it's, this is not just about computers and it's about policy. And so this is another area where I think German uh, defense readiness also includes having the policies in place to be able to uh, counter what Kremlin, the Chinese Communist Party, other threats um, are already employing. You know, the Bundeswehr has got to be able to employ that as well. And I, again, we visited recently a, a German uh, army uh, unit that is specializing in this. And you know they're, they're very careful about policy, but it is a capability that the Bundeswehr recognizes that they need. So that, that to me, uh, is also uh, encouraging. You know, um, Ben, maybe to, as a final uh, point to talk about, uh, you, before we started uh, the recording this uh, uh, podcast, we were talking a little bit about some of the other work you're doing um, at, uh, at SEPA, including um, with regard to Baltic security, regard to Black Sea security. And and I think um, you know what what strikes me in that connection is 
the important role that Germany plays also in regard to those mm-hmm. um, those theaters. Um, and you know, uh, Germany is in that regard, um, I think you know, Europe's indispensable nation. Um, to paraphrase what Madeleine Albright said uh, about the United States uh, so many years ago, but. Can, can you say a little bit about whether uh, how in a, either in the Baltic or in the Black Sea context, how Germany's uh, role comes uh, comes to the fore? Well, first of all, the uh, when Germany said that they would lead the Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group uh, back in 2016 into Lithuania, that was a huge step because number one, having the most important land power uh, on the European continent step forward to take a role an active role in, def- in deterrence um, was, was important. And it put pressure on everybody else. Like, dang it, you know, the Germans are doing it. We can't hide behind the Germans here. So that to me uh, illustrated the Germany's leadership potential within the Alliance. And they've been very effective there in Lithuania with the enhanced word presence battle group that they're leading now since uh, really, I think early 2017. I was impressed with how quickly they got out there. So just their active participation in things like that is important. Uh, the geography though, of course, Germany is the place that everybody that had to prevent a crisis, respond to a crisis or respond to a conflict, you're gonna to have to enter Europe through Germany. I mean, so the airports, the seaports, the rail, the highways, the whole transportation network is so important. Host nation support by Germany is so important. You know, Ramstein Air Base for the United States, essential. Um, even our hospital, Landstuhl, essential. Uh, the logistics capability, uh, the training areas, the headquarters that Germany allows us to have in Germany, essential to American strategic efforts. So Baltic Sea, Black Sea, I don't even want to think about how we would uh, carry out our uh, deterrence efforts if we didn't have this really solid foundation in Germany. So that's a part of it. The second part is the Baltic Sea. <clears throat> People don't think of Germany as a Baltic nation, but obviously it is on the Baltic Sea. It has the uh, largest navy of anybody on the Baltic Sea. and uh, Except the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Although most of Russia's fleet is down inside the Black Sea. Yeah. So, uh, but you do make the point that the U.S. Navy is not going to be able to control the Baltic Sea. We don't, we don't have the resources. This is a place where I think Germany um, <clears throat> should play the, the leading role. Uh, to, uh, they've off, Germany has offered to have a Baltic Maritime Component Command uh, in Rostock. Yep. I think NATO should say, yes, thank you, and then everybody move towards that. Uh, in the Black Sea, uh, Germany has a role to play there in security, but also, uh, and this is the real power in, in diplomacy and economy, um, the Kremlin, I think only Berlin can really influence Kremlin behavior they, because of what Germany represents of economic power, diplomatic power. They've got to, but they've got to muster all that and, and, uh, and use it. And there just seems to be a, a reluctance uh, to do that. All right. Well, um, I think, uh, you know, as we all look ahead to the start of a new government, sometimes it's, you know, you, you marvel at the achievement of, of reaching an agreement to form a coalition, but now is actually when the real work starts. And, uh, and so we are, we are very fortunate here at AICGS to be able to 
uh, talk to uh, people like Ben Hodges, who who understand uh, defense and security issues so deeply based on uh, so many years of experience. And, and so I want to thank you, Ben, for the work you're doing. And uh, thank you for coming by our offices today and, uh, and uh, having this conversation. Well, thank, thanks for the privilege. And, and Jeff, you and your team do a, a really important service to explain the implications of a coalition government. I mean, because it is literally so foreign to Americans, a, you know, what a coalition government means and, and how we have to have a relationship with uh, the Bundestag as well as this coalition government and um, find ways to cooperate, knowing that uh, the chancellor, whoever he or she ever is, will almost never have more than 30 to 35% of the support. Right. So right. that, that uh, affects. So even though Chancellor Merkel, I know she wanted 2%, it was never going to happen because her finance minister and his party opposed it. So um, if, what you do is such an important uh, service to help your audience. Un un well, that's very kind of you. And uh, we look forward to having you perhaps again in the future as our third, <laughs> as, as for the third time, um, setting a new record um, for those who are keeping stats on, on our podcast guests out there. So uh, thanks so much. And we look forward to having all of you with us again on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.